a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You have a standing invitation to come and revel in wrong think with us each and every weekday. I also have a standing invitation with my friend Eric Peters. He drops by once a week to dispense some common sense. Eric, great to catch up with you once again. Oh, likewise, Brian. It looks like we are about to experience the orange apotheosis, possibly. <laughs> yeah, let's let's <laughs> talk about this. So the J6 committee apparently has yep. referred uh, to the Department of Justice. Uh, they they want to, to do criminal charges against Trump. Tell me what, in, in your opinion, where, where does that take us? Uh, well, I think it takes us down a very perilous and dark road. And um, I'll preface this by saying, as I've said before when we've talked about this, I'm in no, uh, I'm no way... Uh, a show for the orange man. I have criticized the orange man many times for many reasons. Uh, the issue here, I think, is that by doing what they look like they're going to do, they, they might very well trigger something that will have consequences that they don't want, or maybe they actually do, and that's probably even more scary. Yeah, when I when I first heard that, uh, you know, well, it's likely that they're going to refer criminal charges I was like, okay, I remember what they did to Roger Stone and and how Mm -hmm. they made this huge production, you know, dozens of FBI agents, everything at gunpoint, the TV cameras were there. How could they do anything less for Donald Trump? Exactly. It it will be more, much more and much worse. Uh, And not just because of the act itself, but because of the repercussions that may follow if they do this, because clearly it's a political witch hunt. We know it. Everybody who's fair-minded understands it. And what they're attempting to do, again, is in a way to, to suborn or take away people's right to, uh, to have the, the candidate of their choice representing them. That's, that's what this is all about. And again, I'm not a fan of Trump per se, but they're worried about him running again in 2024, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to knock him out of contention, even if it means potentially inciting some kind of a violent reaction as a result of it. Now, there's a part of me, too, that looks at this and says, OK, this is going to be a production. You know it's good. this is going to be a show trial that even Stalin would be like, guys, guys, mm-hmm. lighten up a little bit. What are they distracting us from? Is, is this distracting us from the Twitter files and, and what we're learning about the FBI, you know, helping to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story? It, what, what could they possibly not want us looking at by putting on this big spectacle? Well, we haven't got fingers enough on our hands to count, have we? You know, it, it's not just that. It's also holding Fauci accountable looking into what happened over the course of the past three years with regard to Rona monomania, what's going on with regard to uh, Ukraine, what's going on with regard to inflation and gas prices and all of these other things that they don't want people thinking about. You know, they used it, unfortunately, quite effectively, it looked like, prior to the midterms uh, by ranting endlessly about January 6th and abortion, and they succeeded in using that to distract people's attention away from substantive issues. Um, And it looks like they're trying to do the same thing again. And, of course, time is running out. I mean, they've got, what, a couple of weeks before uh, mm-hmm. the new guard will take control of the House of Representatives. And I'm not, I don't have a lot of confidence the Republicans are, are necessarily going to um, do, do the justice that needs to be done here. But um, at least mm-hmm. it's going to take some key people out of committee chairmanships and out of power. And I think they're desperately trying to get whatever they can in the time that's left. 
Well, I think so, too. And I'm even more cynical than you, if that's possible, with regard to what the Republicans will uh, almost certainly not do other than talk, which is what they're infamous for doing. Though I think this will be the last opportunity they have to just talk, because I think people are fed up with it and have had enough of it. And if, if there is not action forthcoming, I think, as I've said before, that this will kind of be the Waterloo of the establishment GOP of uh, the McConnells and the Romneys and all of those people. And they will historically go the way of the Whigs, and there will, there will be, I think, a replacement political party that comes to the fore. And it's possible that the orange man will be the one who leads it. Well, I hope that that change is coming. Because uh, it seems like the ramping up and the attempts to to push us into a reaction. Somebody pointed out the other day, maybe you saw this on Twitter. Uh, the, somebody said, "Look, I'm just waiting for the I'm waiting for the drag Floyd event that will yeah. justify you know the next round of riots." Right. Sure. Exactly. Uh, and that's it. This could be a, a kind of a fait accompli that they're setting up. Uh, you know, hut 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 the orange man, drag him out in manacles, frog march him before some kind of uh, show trial by Shinsky uh, Tribunal. And it's going to set off somebody, perhaps. And maybe they already have uh, a patsy lined up who's going to do what they need uh, to have him do in order for them to once again start warbling about the threats to our democracy and use that as the pretext for the next series of uh, lockdowns and freedom assaults or whatever it is they have in mind. And I think, you know, we should bear that in mind and that they will do anything, anything, to cling on to power. You know, if, if we've learned anything over the past three years, I think that's it. Yep. And it's this to me, this just highlights the importance of, you know, if, if you really want to understand what's going on in the world, one of the things you got to do is break the mind meld of the corporate media and and just reject it outright. They're, they're, they're not going Absolutely. to tell you anything factual, anything that's not helpful to the political class. Well, it's counterfactual. It's even worse than that. It's not just that they're only telling you half of the story. Uh, they're deliberately suppressing the other half of the story. Yep. It's never been more important, you know, to be a free thinker and to, to be willing to question it. And, you know, I, sometimes I don't feel like the stakes are quite as high this year as they were last year. Remember when last year everybody was demonizing the unvaxxed and so forth? Yeah. But mm -hmm. there's some pretty nasty truths that are starting to come out in particular regarding the mRNA vaccines and um, the ex un unexplicable uptick in sudden deaths that uh, can only be caused by anything but the vaccine, why it's probably climate change, you know? Sure. It, you know, each day there's a new despicability. Uh, I think the latest, it was either the FDA or the CDC. I, I can't remember which one it was. But they admitted the other day that, yep, indeed, it turns out that uh, myocarditis and pericarditis are side effects. Uh, of these vaccines that they have been telling us are safe and effective all this time. And, uh, you know, if you had said that a year ago on Facebook or Twitter, you would have had your account pulled and been banned. And it, this is just one of many examples of the truth coming out now that many of us knew or strongly suspected was the truth a year or more ago. And now somehow it's okay, but there are no consequences for the people who lied about it. And there's no apology given to the people who were right about it. Yep. Somebody said something, too, that uh, I, I don't know how you'll you'll react to this, but I want to get your reaction. I, I had seen this earlier today on, on Twitter. Someone had made the comment uh, about how, you know, it's it's important to uh, reaching the next 20 million Americans with the message of liberty is vastly more important than simply being proven right on an issue that they're just now coming around to. In other words, puffing out our chests and sneering at people for not catching on sooner is more likely to make them resent us than actually stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Yeah, no question. I agree with that. And I think uh, much more fundamentally that it's really important 
to get people who don't see uh, the connection between the dots to see it, to see that it's not an isolated case. It's not just the one thing. It's not just the virus and corona monomania, masks and vaccines. That is just one, to use a medical term, etiolization, I can't pronounce it, uh, one manifestation of the same phenomenon, which is to create these manufactured crises to terrify people and to get them to submit to things that they uh, that they ought not to be forced to submit to because they're tyrannical and because they're they're wrong and they're unjustified. By the way, I really enjoyed your uh, your column about to uh, have yourself an awkward little Christmas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe we could touch on that here briefly. Yeah, well, sure. You know, once again, we're headed into Christmas. It's just a week away now, and you know, the, the same people, many of whom cast us out, us unmasked and unvaccinated people from family gatherings and wouldn't have anything to do with us, kept us literally at arm's length or six feet at length or whatever it was because we wouldn't wear a mask and we wouldn't get a vaccine. And now we're supposed to sit around the table with these people and act like nothing happened. And that's a problem. You know, I think we have got to come to a reckoning with these people and these people have got to own up uh, to having been wrong. And for the way that they treated us, they have an obligation to apologize to us. Yep. Yep. I'm, uh, you know, it's it, and I'm seeing stirrings too. You know, of, well, it's the triple threat now. We've got COVID, we've got flu, we've got RSV, and it just seems like uh, it worked once. Surely, it's going to work again as far as uh, getting people, uh, you know, getting people to to toe the line and put the mask back on. Well, have you noticed once again? This is again another connecting of the dots, a common thread. How they push it further along all the time. So now, um, for example, I think it's in Philadelphia. The school systems are forcing kids to mask again, not because of the Rona per se, but because of the flu and the RSV, as you say. So they're trying to normalize this masking stuff on the basis of things that we never masked before. The flu has existed since time immemorial. The next thing they'll do is say the common cold justifies forcing people to wear masks. Yeah. By the way, there was a marvelous article yesterday by Paul Rosenberg, which which brilliantly summed up, here's why you should not uh, go along with uh, the maskers, the mandators, the lockdowners, the vaxxers, the, the people who are trying to control your life. He says the bottom line is everyone got it anyway, regardless of what they did. Right. Everyone got it anyway. Absolutely. So, you know, why waste your time doing stuff that doesn't work? Anyway, Eric, hang on. We're going to pick up. We've got some other fun stuff to talk about here on the other yep. side of this commercial break. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Man, there's so much going on. Eric, by the way, I noticed uh, you had a chance to uh, test out the uh, 2023 Mustang Mach-E. I did. This I got the I second got week that I've been. Hmm? No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say this is the second uh, week that I've had uh, an electric vehicle in a row, and it's the first time in more than twenty-five years now of test driving new cars that I haven't been able to drive the thing every day because of the problem, the, the compounding problem of relatively limited range and very lengthy recharge times. You know, by the time I get home from driving it, even a little bit, there's not much range left, and in order to put more range into it. 
I have to plug it in. And the problem with plugging it in at home is that it takes literally overnight or longer to put any kind of significant charge into one of these electric cars. So basically, unless you have another car, you're not going to be driving it. So I'm reduced to driving this thing every other day, which I've never had to do with a press vehicle. Uh, I know I drive them every single day during the week that I have them to get the driving impressions. So, you know, I started to think about, well, what would that mean if it were my vehicle? And it would mean that I basically have had my driving reduced by 50 percent, which I think ultimately is what they are using these electric vehicles to accomplish. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, I think it was just today I saw the headline that Switzerland is going to be restricting the use of yep. electric vehicles during cold weather. And, and uh, yep. that little voice in my head went, see, this is why Eric is right. <laughs> think twice. Yeah, well, and, you know, you begin to realize things, including me. You know, I didn't realize, for example, that if you don't keep an electric vehicle plugged in all the time, even when it's fully charged, it will lose charge just from sitting. That's the nature of the animal. Um, and part of that is because they've got a system in them to keep the battery maintained at a certain temperature, not too hot and not too cold, which is necessary. Otherwise, the battery won't last as long. So you're constantly having to draw current from the grid, maybe not a whole lot, but try to magnify that uh, times potentially millions of electric cars that are going to be plugged in. Guess when? At night. Oh, yeah. You know, when, the, when the draw on the grid is the greatest because that's when people are home from work and cooking supper, watching TV, doing laundry and all of those other things. And, you know, as the Swiss are finding out and as people all around the world are finding out, there simply isn't sufficient capacity, generating capacity to meet all of these needs. EVs are adding a tremendous load onto a grid that is already marginal in many cases. And so what we're going to end up seeing as a result of this is electricity rationing and or uh, a massive uptick in the cost of electricity, which will have the same effect. Yeah, it, it concerns me. And, and part of the reason it concerns me is because I have a daughter in Germany who's, uh, well, let's just say her husband is very proud to be, you know, very, very green in his thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why when they replaced their car last year, they went and got an electric car. And it, it worries me for them and, and for my grandkids because I think this puts them at direct risk no matter, you know, how much it may please, you know, the climate gods. Yeah, well, there's, there's some good news here, though. Um, as I pointed out in my article about the Mach-E, uh, the price of electric cars has been skyrocketing, not just by a little bit, but by a massive amount. Ford increased the base price of the Mach-E for 2023 by some $3,500 on the low end. And on the upper end, if you get their what they call extended range battery uh, or the models that have it, it's about $8,600 more. And the same went for the Ford Lightning electric truck that I had last week. And the same goes for Tesla cars. They're all going up in price. And you know why they're going up in price? because the materials that go into making electric car batteries are becoming scarce. So you remember how we've been uh, hearing for years now by people who push EVs, oh, don't worry, their cost is going to come down. Batteries will get cheaper. In fact, the opposite is happening. They're becoming more expensive. So the result of that is that these vehicles are now costing $50,000 and up. And that's simply not, to use the environmental word, sustainable. People cannot afford that. There is a limited market for vehicles that cost $50,000, $80,000. So this whole thing is going to come crashing down somehow unless uh, a way is found to dramatically reduce the cost of these electric vehicles. Wow. Well, and, and I think you were one of the first people I've heard who had kind of advanced this idea that where is this all supposed to lead? I mean, I know ostensibly we're supposed to be we're saving the environment, we're changing the climate, uh, you know, we're obeying the political authorities. But it, it really comes down to it sounds like we are being pushed into a corner where driving is going to be. In, it's going to be curtailed. 
I want to say outlawed, yep. but I don't know if it's going to be quite that drastic just yet, but they don't want us driving. You don't even have to make the assertion that it's deliberate. It's simply a fact. You know, if a, if a car costs $50,000 on the low end, uh, most people simply haven't got the income to support that. They cannot buy it. And by the way, when you buy an electric vehicle, too, you're going to have to spend a lot of money at home if you want to be able to drive it. Most homes don't have the ability to use what's called a level two charger, which means a 240 volt uh, dedicated circuit on its own 30 amp, 50 amp circuit. So you've got to have an electrician come out and do that. Now, if your house doesn't have a 200 amp panel to begin with, then you have to get your panel upgraded. And the cost of that can be several thousand dollars. And if you don't do that, and you plug one of these high-voltage uh, EVs into just standard 120-volt uh, household outlets, it will literally take a day or more for the thing to recover any kind of meaningful charge. Wow. Now, again, I'm, I'm checking my own little meter of interest in electric cars. Nope, it's it's uh, diminishing as we speak. It's diminishing like an mm-hmm. EV on a cold day. <laughs> it's just Yeah, and even if you there. like them, you know, let's set aside all of the problems with them in terms of the weight and in terms of the range. The end of the day, the bottom line is, if you can't afford it, you're not going to have it. I'd love to have a supercharged Hellcat Challenger. I think it's a great car. I can't afford it, so it's a moot issue, right? Sure enough. Yep. All right, we're, we've got just a couple of minutes here. Um, Eric, talk to me about anything positive on your radar screen, uh, vehicle-wise or otherwise. Um, I know we've, we've got a lot of moving parts, a lot of bad news going on. Is, is there anything that's giving you encouragement these days? Yeah, actually, and this is sort of a, an under-the-radar development that's happening. And you may know something about this because you live out in the sticks like I do. But a lot of people are beginning to resort to using uh, these UTVs, these you know little vehicles that people will have if they have property to knock around their, their, their fields with. Um, they're not really – they're a step up from a four-wheeler. They have an, they have an enclosed passenger compartment. And they're increasingly beginning to resemble little cars. Um, there's a company called Roxor that makes one. We've talked about this in the past. That's very similar to an old Willys Jeep, and it has a little diesel engine. Uh, and you know, people are buying these things as an alternative to uh, the cars that they, they are able to buy because they, they're, they're not the cars they want to be able to buy and are too expensive. So people are picking up these much less expensive little vehicles and knocking around on them, putting farm tags on them and so on. And to use the language of government apologists, getting away with it. And here's to <laughs> more people getting away with it. Uh, I don't want to sound like a bad person, but you know what? Uh, the, the longer I live and the more I see the true nature of government and the people who seem religiously drawn to it, the more I want to become one of those people who spends every waking moment defying, you know, whatever they're trying to impose on me. Well, I mean, my God, we're, you know, we teach kids to admire the, the people who, who shielded Anne Frank from the Nazis, right? They were getting away with it, too. They were not obeying the authorities. You know, there was a time when Americans understood that just because there's authority doesn't mean it's legitimate. And, you know, if it's illegitimate, you have an obligation to not obey it. And Jefferson wrote about that. This was a founding principle of the country. Uh, you know, if something is a wrong thing, who cares if it's the law? You have a duty to disobey those kinds of laws. And the beauty of it is when someone does that, it, it gives, well, we saw this with masks. It gives the people yep. around them the, the courage and the reassurance that, no, I get, we can defy this. This is stupid. We don't need to. Do, and when enough people reach that tipping point, suddenly, oh, well, we're going to lift the mandates. You know, well, people had already stopped wearing masks a long time ago. So it was just a yeah, same, and I can't overemphasize. 
I cannot overemphasize the importance of taking that step rather than waiting for what happens if we don't take that step. If we, uh, if we disobey now, uh, we avoid living in the kind of country that Alexander Zolzhenitsyn wrote about from the Gulag, where he wrote about how he wished, how he burned uh, in the camps, uh, thinking about what he might have done when he had the opportunity to do it, but didn't do it at the time. Yep. And I think the key point there was they didn't realize that they really had nothing left to lose at that point. So stand exactly. up, resist. Eric, exactly. great as always to visit with you. Have a Merry Christmas. You too, Brian, and everybody listening. Okay, we'll look forward to uh, catching up next week and some fun things to yep. look forward to in the new year. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for joining in today. You know, I'm I'm actually feeling a little bit of Christmas cheer, but it's not going to stop me from sharing with you some of the uh, weightier topics at hand. And and in particular, I'm just I'm I'm indebted to James Howard Kunstler. Maybe it's just that he has a great way of turning a phrase, but I think this guy has one of the clearest pictures of what's going on, the big picture of what's happening. And I'm happy to tell you, this is the part that makes me happy. It's finally starting to dawn on some people that the political class and their various allies in academia and in business and so forth have been waging war on us. In fact, let me take it beyond that because that makes it sound like, well, we're all victims, but they've been waging war on truth and reality. Have you noticed this? Yeah, it's it's become really apparent, especially in the last couple of years. But uh, James Howard Kunstler's article, uh, his column rather, A Christmas Parable, this is a must-read. I'll include a link to this in the show notes. Kunstler starts with a quote from Miranda Devine from the New York Post. The powerful are panicking, and so they should. Their secrets are leaking. By the way, tip of the hat to my friend Ruben for sending me a text yesterday and saying, there's a hole in the dam, and he's right. There is. The information is coming out, and, and it's, on the one hand, it's, it's vindicating, right? The, the stuff, well, you just cons- you conspiracy theorists, you tinfoil hat wearers. It's starting to become very clear that uh, the conspiracy theorists' batting average is really up there. They've been, they've been getting it right for some time. They may be kooks, but they're kooks who got it right. And this is very scary for the powerful because uh, their secrets are coming out. And guess what we're learning? They're not good people. They're not working in our interest. And most importantly, if they are working against us, we have absolutely no moral duty to obey them or to do as they tell us. (laughs) So James Howard Kunstler says, as the Yule log burns down and the trivialities of the season melt into air, the nation might ask itself how the authorities who run things went to war against the citizens of this land. He says, I will tell you, and it will probably make you angry. It started when the women of the professional and managerial class watched their avatar, Hillary Clinton, lose the 2016 election against a man who seemed the quintessence of everything they hated about daddydom. Donald Trump, flawed to perfection, wrecked the chance of the amalgamated successful women of America to run the national household. 
Out came the pussy hats, the Wiccans, and the celebrities threatening to blow up the White House. Out came a savage animus against men generally and a campaign to feminize them in retaliation and then punish them for objecting to it. Up rose a social movement, wokery, that had the earmarks of a histrionic religious mania with satanic overtones. Up rose the demons, the Antifa louts, the BLM arsonists, the drag queens. Thus unrolled a national psychodrama that continues to spool out as every system, every business, every institution in our country wobbles and flies apart now. He says the men embedded in the professional and managerial class tried in 2016 to chivalrously protect their women's avatar and her steadfast followers. And failing ignobly that grim November day, then turned to actually attack their adversary, Donald Trump, with the explicit intent to destroy him by all means necessary. In the years-long process, they devolved into criminality. And in so doing, they entered a vicious cycle of lying about everything they did to escape the consequences of their ostensible exercise in gallantry. In effect, the people running things went from a war against a particular person to a war against reality and its twin sister, truth. Now they are deeply invested in unreality and untruth to the point where they've forgotten how this whole thing started and all they can do is desperately patch the dike they had to construct against a deluge of information composed of truth and reality coming at them like a tsunami rolling across the sea. The harder they work at this futile task of defense, the more absurd they make themselves, leading to ridicule, humiliation, and finally condemnation in whatever remains of the legal arena, where their deeds will finally be judged. The first stage of that outcome for them is pretending that none of it is happening. That's why the New York Times and the Washington Post ignore the news that the gallant knights of the FBI and several other tentacles of the Intel octopus mounted a ferocious, long-running psyop through through the phenomenon of social media that happened to rise in importance through this whole period of national discord. In effect, the intel agencies seized the transmitters, as Fidel Castro might put it, and used them very effectively to control their hallowed narratives. The second stage is deploying a ruse to distract the public's attention. That's why CNN allowed Representative Adam Schiff, the most accomplished liar in all of American politics, to set the stage on Sunday for this week's criminal referrals against Mr. Trump to be issued out of the White out of the House special J6 committee he sits on. That will give America something to talk about rather than how they've been gaslit and deceived for years. If the party of chaos can only bring back the insurrection to the spotlight, they will feel safe for a little while during the Christmas holiday. Because shortly after the new year, there will be a different crew running the J6 committee. And for the first time in a couple of years, they will be looking into neglected matters such as the FBI's actual role in that event and Nancy Pelosi's failure to honor the then-president's request for national troops to protect the Capitol building. Kunstler says, between then and now, we must expect to see the release of Elon Musk's Twitter files regarding the interactions between federal public health officials and the social network during the years of COVID-19. He says, you understand that these officials, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, CDC Chief Dr. Rochelle Walensky, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, and many others, lied about absolutely everything concerning the pandemic and continue lying this moment to this moment about the putative remedy for it, our mRNA vaccines, which happen to be killing a lot of people these days. That will be very serious business. Soon will come congressional inquiries, subpoenas, compelled testimony, and perhaps even criminal referrals. 
Now, he says, of course, the professional and managerial class also happens to be the most stalwart group of vaccine champions in the land, and thus the most psychologically invested in thinking they did the right thing, taking all those shots, while forcing as many others to submit, whether they consented or not. The psychology of previous investment is a prime generator of self-delusion. It looks like that class of people will be proven incorrect the hard way. It turns out, after all, that the mRNA vaccines were very effective at being deadly. The excess mortality has already kicked in. It's 18% above normal, for instance, in Australia right now because they're keeping track. Our officials don't want to keep track. They don't want to know. And they certainly don't want you to know. This is what you get when you make war against truth and reality. I know some might think, well, that's uh, that's a tad harsh, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. This strikes me as truthful, and this strikes me as, uh, I think it's a fair assessment. Frankly, I think he's holding back. Anyway, I'll have a link to James Howard Kunstler's latest column, A Christmas Parable. Picked it up off of lewrockwell.com today, a wonderful resource for wrong thinkers. But wow, that is... Uh, you can, you can understand the panic on the part of the political class right now. This is one of the reasons why they, they, they have to make their move against Donald Trump. And, and by so doing, by criminalizing him, I think that personally, I think they want to arrest him on camera, perp walk him and, you know, put on a big show trial for the purpose of criminalizing anyone who would be tempted to support him. And, you know, look, I'm not a huge Trump fan, but compared to the alternative... He is a lot better. <laughs> he's, he's, a much, he's a much less corrupted and much less uh, destructive choice in terms of, uh, I, look, I, I guess I'm, I'm not trying to stump for him and, and say he should be the next president. He should be the president right now. I'm just saying the people who are destroying America, who are actually undermining and destroying the principles on which this nation was founded, they're doing a fine job of it. And no matter how much they tried to tell us in 2016, Trump is going to destroy all these things. He didn't. There were things, there are plenty of things he did wrong. He deserves criticism. Really, the lockdowns, he went along with it. He went along. He bragged about the vaccine. We did this in record time. And, you know, he backed off after a while when it became clear, I guess, at some point that, uh, you know, his own medical advisors, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, were trying to do him in. And in fact, they, they succeeded. They crippled him politically, and he may be a political liability. But don't forget, the people who are going after him, you know, the, this is, the, our enemy is not in Russia, our enemy is not in China, our enemy is right here at home, and they're doing everything they can to marginalize and weaponize the government against people who just want to be free, just want to be left alone. Whether you're a Trump supporter or not, if you are, a lover of freedom, if you're a person who embraces the principles and practices of liberty, you're the enemy. That may be a bitter truth. That may be something you don't want to consider. I don't like it either. But I'd rather face hard realities than, you know, find myself in chains wondering, hey, how did that happen? Because I, you know, had to hear things that were pleasing to my ears and ignore what was really going on. So it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks. How much damage do you think they can do in the next 15 days? I guess we're going to find out the answer to that question. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. And I would invite you, please subscribe to my show notes if you haven't done it already. Just go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on show notes. You'll find links to all the articles and the various guests that I have on the program. And you can uh, take it from there. Just drop in your email address. I will send you a copy of my show notes each day that I do the show. Got three quick topics that I'd like to touch on here in uh, this closing segment. Um, first one is, this is a great article from Gary Gallas. This is on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. goes back a couple of years. And I know not everybody is, uh, not everybody's a fan of Ayn Rand. In fact, it's funny, what, in, in the days when I was a columnist for St. George News, um, you know, anything I said that was liberty-related, I had a predictable little cadre of critics who'd follow me around. He's wrong! You know, I'd say the sky is blue. No, it's not! It's it's light blue! You know, it's just anything so they could say, gotcha! And and one of the common things that they would accuse me of is, you have an Ayn Rand fixation. Now, this is whether I was quoting her or referring to anything she had written or not. It was just like, well, I had that obsession too when I was young and inexperienced, but I outgrew her and, yes, and then became, you know, a collectivist. You became a socialist, and that's where we had to part company. But uh, Ayn Rand, who was born Elisa Rosenbaum, one of the most controversial writers in American history, and yet she has probably been, what well, as I encounter people who are really serious about liberty, almost to a person, they will say, yeah. She influenced me. Books like Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead really, you know, helped to open people's minds to the idea of, ooh, maybe there is something here. She, she had very keen insights into liberty, rights, and government. And Gary Gallus has combined 35, or compiled rather 35 different quotes. Let me just give you a couple of them here. I love this one. Individual rights are the means of subordinating society to moral law. Think about that one for a while. That might be one to talk around, talk about around the campfire. The recognition of individual rights entails the banishment of physical force from human relationships. Let's see if we can find another one. Rights impose no obligations on neighbors except a, of a negative kind to abstain from violating his rights. And I love this one. This is, this is probably the most accurate one I, I've seen in describing it. A right means freedom from physical compulsion, coercion, or interference by other men. It reminds me of something Joseph Sobrand once pointed out a long time ago that has just stuck in my head, and that is our natural rights. When we refer to our rights, that's what limits government power over us. And, of course, mentioning that makes statists quake where they stand. Eh, you can't do that. you got to do what I say. Anyway, I have a link to this in the in the show notes today. Please check it out. I think you'll find it well worth your worth your while. Also, as we're starting to get a clearer picture of how corrupted the FBI and the Department of Justice have become in trying to quash dissent against the official narrative, I've got a great article by Andrea Widberg about how the most damning F I'm sorry, the most damning Twitter file just dropped highlighting FBI wrongdoing. And this is about the suppression of the story about Hunter Biden's laptop. No, I know people tend to get caught up in the salacious details. Well, he was naked. He was with underage prostitutes. He was doing drugs. You know, the man has a lot of vices and, and they're all well documented on that laptop. But the most important 
part of the information on that laptop, which has been verified, is that he was part of a multi-generational, as in the Biden family, crime syndicate peddling influence for money to foreign nations. Okay, maybe I'm premature in calling it uh, criminal, right? He hasn't been convicted in court. But the bottom line is, if people understood how much Joe Biden was peddling influence via his son, Hunter. Do you think it's reasonable that some people might have uh, changed their minds before allegedly voting for him in the 2020 election? Because the FBI ruthlessly suppressed any stories, and, and and I've seen the stories now and some of the examples of the Twitter files where the Biden team knew that that story was going to break. They knew when the New York Post was going to do it, and the FBI reached out to him and, and uh, said, look, this is, this is how we can, can stop this. And so you had intelligence officials getting out in front of the public, lying, 50 of them signing, this is classic Russian disinformation, except they were the ones who were lying. You notice we use the word lying a lot with politics? It's almost like it goes hand in hand. They can't be honest. Somebody pointed this out a long time ago. It's indelicate, but I think it's true. A politician would rather lie to people than fart in front of people. Well, I wouldn't want to do either. Exactly. But a politician will gladly lie. They'll gladly tell you lies. They'll tell you whatever they need to, to say in order to get elected. And then they'll do whatever they need to do to keep the money coming to keep them in power. I mean, we can draw our own conclusions, but that sounds like a pretty amoral kind of arrangement. And yet I think it accurately describes the vast majority of politics. So I would recommend check out Andrea Widberg's article about the most damning Twitter file just dropped highlighting FBI corruption, particularly with the the Hunter Biden story. By the way, she's got the the actual tweets, the actual screenshots and and the stories that show you this. uh, This is not just a figment of somebody's imagination. It's a fairly lengthy article, but it's well worth your time if you want to see for yourself what our mainstream media absolutely will not tell you. All right, one final note. What is it that makes people treat those with a differing point of view like they were hated enemies? I've heard this term before, and I think it actually applies, ideological possession. You probably had to deal with ideologically possessed people on social media, right? They're the ones who will just argue and start throwing the names out there and just, you know, invective of every every sort when you disagree. That's the real pandemic. This is an article by Robin Kerner, who says, Recent years have been dominated by a deadly viral disease. Older forms of the disease have always been present in the population at lower levels, but about three years ago, the latest form rapidly took hold of our entire population reaching pandemic levels and affecting people of all ages and backgrounds. Its consequences included various degrees of incapacitation, extended periods of confinement, lost jobs, destroyed businesses, uh, painful paresthesias, pericarditis, myocarditis, even death. Unbeknownst to many, a Canadian clinician had been working hard to warn us of its dangers long before anyone noticed the pandemic. And the twist here is he says, I'm referring to the highly contagious epistemic epistemic disease of ideological possession. He says, any ideology has the potential to be deadly when advanced by those who are so sure of their own knowledge and moral outlook that they would impose it against the protestations of those affected by it. 
To the ideologically possessed, the imposition, the imposition can always be justified because it's the right thing to do. It will start working if we keep at it. The complaints are coming from bad people, and so on. And he says, as we've witnessed over the last couple of years, ideological possession can motivate the abrogation of basic rights, including the compulsion of uninformed medical consent, the shaming and shunning of those who wish to exercise those basic rights, and the refusal to acknowledge the experiences of those harmed by the disease, and so on. Now, he actually lists out some of the symptoms of ideological possession. And I'm only going to touch on a couple of these because of the time limits, but major symptoms include the possessed insists that anyone who disfavors a specific view or policy must also reject the basic moral value that to the possessed individual justifies that view or policy. This is the fallacy of the assumed paradigm. For instance, I care about saving lives. I believe everyone should be compelled to be immunized, immunized rather, with a new vaccine that has not undergone long-term testing. You don't think they should be compelled to take said vaccine. Therefore, you don't care about saving lives. They also use simplistic and unkind descriptors of people they've never met as a means of dismissing the value of all their beliefs or actions. For example, he's an anti-vaxxer and I represent science. If someone's attacking me, they're really attacking science. Sound familiar? Yeah, it was Dr. Fauci. The possessed advocates that people within a specified group uh, should be treated worse than everyone else while believing that they are the better person. Don Lemon from CNN, the people who aren't getting vaccines, it's time to start shaming them. And he goes on down the list. Now, minor symptoms include the possessed enjoys opportunities to defend what he believes more than opportunities to make his beliefs more accurate. The possessed collects data that support her beliefs instead of seeking data that would help her correct false beliefs. The possessed would rather reform society's institutions to better serve his ideology than reform his ideology to better serve people. Now, from here, Robin Kerner goes into, you know, how to how to actually maintain good health, how to uh, how to cure this ideological possession. I think really this is where, where we have to start with ourselves, because the truth of the matter is any one of us can become ideologically possessed. But I think the, the surest symptom, the surest telltale sign, it's not losing your sense of taste or smell. Ideological possession comes when you feel like you can justify using force against peaceful people to bend them to your will and against their consent. Anytime you find yourself in that mindset, get help. This is The Brian Hyde Show.